Hello and welcome back to the IC interviews. I'm Mary McDougall, an investment writer at Investors Chronicle, and I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Plowden, senior partner at Bailey Gifford and manager of Monk's Investment Trust and Bailey Gifford Global Alpha Growth Fund. Charles joined Bailey Gifford in 1983 and became a partner in 1988. He has worked across a number of investment teams over his career at the firm and has been its chief of investment staff since 2006. We are speaking at the end of April 2021 in what is his last week at Bailey Gifford before he embarks on a well-earned retirement. We're going to talk about how the company has evolved to become the dominant force it is today, how he feels about the outlook for the firm and the industry, and some more specific points about his own investment approach. Charles, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Mary. Now, you joined Bailey Gifford 38 years ago. Imagine it was very different then to what it's like now. Can you talk about how the company and the industry have changed um, over your career? Well, the, the company has changed hugely. Uh, I mean, it was very small and it was very old fashioned. It was sort of panelled offices. Uh, all the partners were called Mr. Uh, you know, there were no, it wasn't really first names for people like me when you arrived. Um, I remember being issued slightly for show, I have to say, by a slide rule. I think I was given a calculator and a slide rule, but some of the partners preferred to use a slide rule. Um, and it was quaint, really. It was Dickensian and quaint. But I joined Bailey Gifford because I was told that it was the best possible training for an investment analysis that was available in the UK. So that's why I came. It was part of my education. Uh, so the firm has changed hugely. It was fewer than 40 people. Um, less than a billion pounds of funds. Um, and I guess it's expanded and, and evolved with the industry. Um, but, you know, at the time, you, would have said, you wouldn't have said it was a business. You weren't joining a business. You were joining a, a firm, just as, you know, if you were joining a, a lawyer's firm or an accounting firm uh, or a medical practice now. You know, you'd think of it like that rather than as joining a big company, a big business. Yeah, the partnership structure is quite distinct for Bailey Gifford compared with compared with other asset management companies. And it's Bailey Gifford has also done exceptionally well compared with its peers over a over a long period of time. What what would you attribute to the firm's success? And, and do you think this partnership structure plays into it? And can you talk a bit about how that works? Yeah, no, well, we definitely think uh, the partnership structure is a is a big part of it. Uh Essentially, so how it works is the firm is entirely owned by 46 partners, currently 46 partners, all of whom work full time in the business. So there's no outside shareholders at all. So the people working in the business have absolute full discretion as to what, you know, how the business works and what it does and where it invests uh, its resources. So um, we have no outside masters requiring, you know, higher dividends year on year or encouraging us to do deals, we can just take an independent view of what's best for the clients. And we have a very strong feeling that what's best for the clients in the long term is also going to be best for the firm. So there's no difference there. There's a complete um, you know, common, common interest with the clients. And, and, and it is a differentiator, but I think even in 1983, there were, you know, there were probably quite a lot of other investment firms that were structured as partnerships, but by and large, they've, they've tended to disappear. They've either um, IPO'd and joined the stock market, or they've been taken over. And in most cases, I think both. 
most of those that went public then subsequently got taken over by a larger a larger being and we just think that makes life much harder for investors because they do have to grow their assets they do have to maximize their revenues uh, they're, they're under much more sort of short-term pressure to perform and to grow their business than we are. We have no short-term pressures except for those that we put on ourselves, if that makes sense. We, we think it gives us um, a lot of advantages um, that are more distinctive the more time that goes on. And it, in particular, it allows us to do things like closing popular strategies uh, when they're growing very fast um, because you know, too much money coming in in too much of a hurry can be difficult to manage and can harm performance. And it's on the other side, it allows us to continue to invest, for example, in hiring people uh, in the bad times. So you know, when a, a financial crisis comes along, what you find is most companies, in particular the public companies, slash costs, stop investing, stop hiring. And in fact, they start laying people off. Whereas we do the opposite, we continue to hire. And in fact, downturns have produced some of our strongest cohorts of uh, graduate trainees. So um, it allows us to, to do the opposite of what other people are doing. And we think that's helped. Are you confident that Bailey Gifford will retain its partnership structure where, where other companies haven't? I, I'm, I'm as confident, I'm probably more confident in that than in any other um, prediction. I mean, I think everyone at Bailey Gifford recognises that the partnership structure and the independence is the USP, and that gives us the advantages uh, that we can use. So um, I would be, I would be amazed if that changed. The firm's grown a lot recently, especially, um, but there was a thing in the Times where James Anderson, the manager of Scottish Mortgage, Bailey Gifford's flagship fund, who's announced his um, that he that he's leaving the firm, and he said that in investment management firms need to be careful that they don't get too big, um, and commented that Bailey Gifford has more compliance officers than total number of staff when he joined, um, and that of one thousand five hundred people working. For for the for the firm, only a hundred are clear equity investors, um, and this is something that he worries about. Is it something that you worry about, and how big do you think is too big? Um, well, uh, there's a number of things to say. That one, you know, I'd rather this uh, interview wasn't all about what James said, but what about uh, more about what I might say? Secondly, he's been saying that for thirty years uh, that management and bureaucracy get in the way of investment. And I think we all can see that. So the question is, is our compliance department or whatever getting in the way of the investors? And the answer is no, they're not. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that we've been very clear that we, we do a lot of things in-house by choice because we think it's better for the clients to do it in-house that other firms could outsource. And, you know, so we could employ far fewer people if we outsourced functions like HR, like compliance, like accounting, uh, and in particular, like IT, and we could be a much smaller firm. And that, in theory, would give James less to worry about. But of course, someone is still doing the work. And we just think it's better if it happens under our control than under someone else's control. And uh, going back to the partnership, I would point out of the 46 partners, fully half of them are equity investors. 
Uh, so it is still very much an investor-led firm and its priorities are set by the investors. And of the 46, so half are, are, are investors, uh, almost all of the other, the, the other half are involved with looking after clients. And I think at the last count, there were four, possibly five, but uh, I think it's four partners whose job was to, you know, to keep the lights on and to keep the, the, the regulators happy. Uh, so I think we've got the balance about right. It's 90% investment and client-focused and 10% admin-focused. So people really are your most valuable asset and you're, you're focusing on keeping them in-house, as you said. What, what qualities do you look for in staff? And can you tell us what you think makes a good fund manager and, and what makes a bad fund manager? Well, I guess it, it's fair to point out, given the previous question, that we have at least three different graduate schemes. So... Uh, recruitment streams. There's, there's the investment scheme, which I guess is the one you're asking about, um, but we also have IT and uh, operations uh, schemes. And, you know, you'd obviously look for different things uh, across the different roles. But in the investors, I mean, the key thing, if, and I do get asked this by some of my children's friends, you know, the key thing is curiosity. I mean, you have to be, you know, that is the, the watchword for us. People who are interested in developments that are shaping the world, people who are prepared to spend, you know, large parts of their own time at weekends and in the evenings reading and thinking and listening to podcasts and pursuing that interest and a sort of appetite for learning. So we, we just like to take bright people uh, and let, you know, let them use their curiosity to see where, where it ends up. And we can teach the skills to be an investor, but we can't teach the enthusiasm for the job. So uh, they have to come uh, with that, you know, from the start. Back in terms of um, the outlook for the company, this is a big if, but we've got the Scottish elections coming up in May. Um, if the Scottish Nationalist Party um, got their wishes and Scotland went independent, what impact do you think this might have on the company? Uh, that is something that I, <laughs> that's something for my successors to uh, think about and have views on. I mean, you know, Bailey Gifford has been around for 110 years and survived, you know, two world wars and God knows what else, however many financial crises there are, and changes of government. So uh, it's highly unlikely that a change of government position in, you know, it, it is going to derail, make us bad investors. The difficulty would be more likely to, you know, would our clients, would we still be able to contract with our clients on the same terms uh, and so on. So in the absence of any clear uh, policies, uh, it's really impossible to tell what the impact would be, um, apart from to point out the obvious that only a small percentage of our client base uh, is based, lives in Scotland. Um, but it's also what, what may surprise you or our listeners is that over 70% of our business comes from outside the UK. So, you know, for an American or an Australian or a Japanese client, um, I don't think they would have see any difference between appointing a British firm or a Scottish firm. Yeah, that's true. Yes, I think it's fair it? to say that um, most of your staff are based in Scotland. Absolutely, yeah. High 90s. And, anyway, let's turn to your investment approach, something you do have control over, unlike the outcome of... Um, Scottish independence. The firm's ethos appears to be finding good companies and owning them for the long term. What are the key metrics you look for for finding these companies? 
Um, well, I guess what we like is, is uh, you know, companies addressing a growing opportunity where it's possible to establish a competitive edge or a competitive advantage. So, you know, in any industry, we would typically be looking at one of the leaders to invest in a company that's got a, an entrenched, you know, advantage that can build. So it's share, a growing share of a rising market um, would be the, the, you know, the, the sort of environment that we like. I mean, this isn't always the case, but that's generally the sort of company uh, that we go for. Uh, we like companies that have a sense of mission, that are trying to, you know, that they're not just extracting from society or from their customers, but are, are making things better. Um, so investing with the grain of society, and increasingly that would extend to ESG and particularly the environment, the environmental factors. You know, we want to find companies that at the very least aren't making things worse, but generally we'd hope to find companies that are making things better. Um, and often, you know, particularly these days, there is a, a founder or a controlling family or shareholder that, you know, can, can encourage the company to invest for the long term. I think if you look at, you know, a list of our more successful investments, over the years, what they have in common is that they don't worry about short-term profits. Uh, they invest for the long term, usually in the customer proposition, making their product easier or more popular or, or you know, better for their customers. Um, and it's always thinking about profits in 10 years' time rather than next year. And that's how they gain market share because they can be pretty aggressive uh, in the short term. So that's what they, they generally have in common. And those are you know, some of the features that we look for. I mean, uh, to sum it up, you know, we do like companies that grow at an above average rate. Uh, we're typically looking for top quartile sort of growth uh, companies. And the longer that growth can be sustained, uh, that's when you get into the, the sort of outlier territory. You know, that's very small percentage of companies that produce the bulk of stock market returns. Um, it's usually the duration of a steady growth rate um, at above average rates. So you're looking for long-term growth prospects yeah. um, and ignoring short-term fluctuations and things you can't predict. But can you really isolate yourselves from the concerns that people have over valuations at the moment, particularly in the types of companies that Bailey Gifford has large holdings in, and also threats posed by high levels of debt rapid increases in the money supply, prospect of inflation. Are these, do these considerations feed into your thinking at all? Uh, well, I think that the, the, the last three you mentioned, the macro features, um, really don't. Um, because we think if you've got a company that is in control of its own destiny, that's gaining market share in a growing market, you know, the level of interest rates um, or the, the level of you know, government debt is not going to have a big impact. It's it's much more about what the company does and whether it continues to win customers and so on. Um, the question of valuation, though, I mean, everyone worries about uh, or thinks about at least valuation. Um, I think that the view is, you know, a lot of outsiders think our stocks are overvalued. And the answer is we don't think they're overvalued. We spend quite a lot of time thinking about valuations. Um, but you have to look forward if you're going to think about valuations. 
Um, and you know, too many people look at this year's valuation and this year's profitability, or even worse, last year's profitability, and then extrapolate and say it's expensive, whereas we don't think, uh, you know, by and large, I mean, if we thought they were expensive, we would sell them and we'd find something else that was, wasn't expensive. Um, so I, I just think, you know, it's too simplistic to say all Bailey Gifford stocks are expensive. Um, you know, we, we don't think they are, and if they were, we'd go and find some more. Yeah, so you've certainly served your investors well um, over the last decade and longer. A related question, which I think is quite interesting for your stock picking approach. How much bad news and what kind of bad news might disturb or change a long term view on an individual company? So there was a criticism of Woodford in one of the books written about him recently, arguing that he had perhaps got complacent and lost his edge because he dismissed any um, problems with the statement that he was a long-term investor. So uh, maybe, I don't know if you have an example of a company that you've sold when the investment case has changed. Uh, I would have thought, I'd, yes, I, I'm sure I have lots of examples. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the most important thing, both when we buy a stock and when we sell it, is not the price. I mean, that's you know, important to understand. The most important thing is the fundamental prospects for growth. So, you know, it's gaining market share in a stronger market, growing your profits at a well above average rate. Uh, price is secondary. It's getting the company right. So the sort of companies that, uh, you know, where we consider selling or where we're most likely to sell is when the fundamentals are not developing as we had hoped. In other words, the company, you know, that you hoped would be growing its revenues and gaining market share for, for reasons that may not be obvious, you know, up front, stops gaining share because someone else has got a better widget or a better store or a better product. Um, and those are the ones that you worry about. You don't worry about the price. You worry about essentially the revenues and the profits. Um, and that's our absolute focus. And that's what we mean about fundamental investing. Um, you know, and it's just... Um, so, I mean, almost every stock we've sold, to be honest, is because we have concerns about the fundamentals. Uh, it's quite rare for us to sell just because of the price. Fund managers who don't have to worry about the fundamentals are the big passive houses, um, which has been a big growing trend in recent years. Um, sort of the antithesis of Bailey Gifford's active approach, which has also been very successful. Um, as I understand it, Bailey Gifford has no involvement in passive and has also lost um, some pension assets to passive managers over the years. How do you see the relative advantages of active and passive? Um, well, they're, they're, they're clearly different. Uh, I mean, passive is has been getting cheaper and cheaper and passive gives you the index return. Uh, an active manager, and particularly if they're doing the job that they should be doing, uh, will give you a return that is higher than the index um, over time, but will charge a, a higher fee. So the key, the key um, figure is what is your value added after fees? Is active more reliable? You know, is is the extra uh, volatility, if you like, or the extra risk? Uh, is it worth it? Uh, and in our case, unequivocally, it has. I mean, in recent years we have created, we have delivered for our clients value after fees of over 100 billion pounds 
in the last five or six years. That is outperformance after fees. If you looked at the entire passive industry worldwide, its value added after fees over and above the index will be zero. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's a different, it's a different thing. You know, we are aware, but, but just as passive gets cheaper and cheaper, and so the index is more available at a low price, that means that active managers need to get better, deliver active value, uh, but they also need to get cheaper. So alongside our own value added that I've already given you a figure for, we've also been at the same time reducing fees for the bulk of our clients. So the clients get to hold on to more of the return that we can earn. And that's uh, something that, you know, in a way we've got uh, passive funds to thank for this focus on, on low cost. I, I think our industry fees uh, have tended to be too high and performance has tended to be too indifferent. Um, and both of those need to be uh, getting addressed. But we have, uh, in our own way, been addressing them for ourselves. Yes, it's very noticeable how much lower um, the fees are in a lot of the Bailey Gifford trusts. Um and the great success that many of them have had. On that theme, maybe taking your Bailey Gifford hat off, do you, do you worry about how big some of these passive players have got? Um, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, do they sort of they have such a, a dominant hold of assets, they could almost sort of become policy makers to an extent in their well, decision making power. I mean, there is an issue here. In fact, there's probably two issues at least. Uh, and um, you know, the, the, there is an issue that the more money goes into passive, then it's not being allocated according to, you know, to, to any economic benefits, the capital. Uh, the, the most money, the money just flows into the largest companies, not necessarily the most deserving companies. And as we move into more of a you know, sustainability uh, as, as the sort of key uh, driver, who's making the decision as to where the money should should go, which are the companies that are actually going to solve the world's problems. And I think you, you can't let a, a computer do that for you. That takes, you know, research, analysis, thought, uh, discussion, and that's really more the realm of active managers. Um, and it gets worse, of course, the, the bigger the share of the market the passive holds, then the smaller, it's sort of tail and dog, um, you know, that puts more onus on the active managers to uh, accurately or appropriately allocate their capital. But I mean, I don't worry about it, except that passive is just, you know, it, it is what it says it is. It is passive. It's not trying to have any kind of impact. Uh, it's not trying to improve governance. It's not differentiating between good companies and bad companies. It's only differentiating between big companies and small companies. So it's very backward looking, not forward looking. Yes, you couldn't have the whole market as passive, otherwise there wouldn't really be a market. I think the rise of thematic ETFs is quite interesting. I've seen a, a huge growth in them recently. Many of them focused on fashionable areas that might be the types of companies that you or Bailey Gifford would want to invest in. Um, does this become a concern about and we talked about valuations before but that these vehicles if, when money floods into them that just pushes up the prices of what they're investing in and um that sort of the same happens if people then rush out of it 
Or would that not be something that would be a, a concern? Um, no, well, that that indeed could be a concern. Um, but again, you know, I think you're equating the sort of stocks Bailey Gifford likes with fashionable stocks. Um, and really the art of buying investments is to buy them when they're not fashionable and hold them, you know, for the long term, as you say. And if you're holding them for the long term, they will go in and out of fashion. And really the trick is not to sell them when they're out of fashion and not to buy them when they're heavily in. Uh, but you're going to hold them for 10 years plus. Um, so, yes, I think in the short term, money flows do affect. You know, that I've always believed in everything in investment. Everything comes down to the balance between supply and demand. And if demand is, you know, excessively hot at one point, then it's probably not going to be a great time to be to be buying. Um, so, yeah, we, we are as sensitive and, and as aware of that as any other investor uh, you could think of. Makes sense. And um, my understanding is that the company doesn't have a house view, but individual fund managers um, and individual fund teams make their own make their own decision. Um, yeah. But a lot of well, a number of holdings across the funds overlap. Um, so is this because generally the investment case looks so strong that many managers agree? And would it ever be a concern that funds start to look too similar, particularly as the company seems to be growing and taking on new mandates? Um, I mean, the, the, the short answer to that is, is no, the overlap hasn't been increasing. If anything, it's, it's been coming down. And just to give you an example of that, uh, between the um, Monks and Scottish Mortgage are two big global investment trusts. Uh, we do, we, we often get asked, you know, what's the difference between one and the other? And, uh, while they're both big global trusts, they're structured very differently and they're managed. The philosophies are different. The teams are different. The research process is different. Um, but the overlap over the last six years, I mean, six years ago, it was about 20%. There were about 20 stocks out of 100 that Monks owns, 20 out of 120 that Monks owns, that were also owned by Scottish Mortgage. Uh, that number is still, in fact, it's now below 20. It's now 18 uh, stocks in monks. Uh, so, you know, the, the, and, and that accounts for about 20% of the portfolio. So um, the overlap hasn't been increasing. Uh, and if you look at the overlap between monks and Scottish American, it's, you know, less than 10%. Uh, Edinburgh Worldwide, it's it's less than 10%. So, the, you know, it's it's not true. What, what though, has has been more obvious is the correlation of performance, that all our funds have been performing well at the same time, but it's not because they all own the same stocks. Um, now, there are obviously names that, you know, like an Amazon or um, you know, Tencent or Alibaba that will appear in a large number of our funds, but they will appear in 100% of index funds, and they will probably appear in 95% of all actively managed funds because they are among the world's biggest and best companies. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we uh, will be any more, you know, we, we really don't have particularly high overlap, uh, and I don't think it's an issue. That's, that's a very fair point. Um, you didn't mention Tesla. What's your, what's your view on Tesla? Uh, well, Tesla's an interesting one. I think uh, my, the strategy I managed was the 
second strategy to buy Tesla. Uh, so we were we were early in. It was previously only owned by our smaller company strategy, um, uh, and we bought it in 2012. Uh, we've held it ever since. Um, but uh, in uh, Monks and the Global Alpha strategy, we've never allowed it to become a large part of the portfolio. So as the price goes up, we have tended to sell. Now, with hindsight, that you know that is suboptimal. Um, we would have made more money if we hadn't sold any, but because of the the risks and uncertainties involved, uh, you know, we felt it was appropriate that as the valuation rose, we kept it uh, as a sort of risk managed position. Uh, it's still a holding. It's approximately I don't know two percent of the portfolio, uh, so it's one of our you know, I mean, out of a hundred, we've got over a hundred stocks, so it's 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 larger than average. Um, and we still we still see good upside. I mean, it's probably um, an interesting point just to to again repeat. I've said elsewhere, but certainly for uh, monks and the global alpha funds, we have a very simple rule of thumb that we we won't own a stock if we can't see at least a thirty percent chance, and it is a chance, a calculation of it doubling over the next five years. And that is as true of Amazon as it is of Tesla, as it is of some of the smaller companies that we we might own. So, you know, we, we still see good upside. It's gaining share. Well, it's probably no longer gaining share because it already has huge share in the electric vehicle market, but it's gaining share of the overall uh, auto market. It's opening plants on different continents, expanding, it's proving its margins, it's dealt with the balance sheet concerns. So it's you know it's here for the long term, and it has uh, some of the most popular cars available um, you know, to buy. But, so we think that's all quite a, a positive background, and we'll continue to to back the company. Yes, I just want to go back before I ask you more specific questions about the funds that that you manage. Um, looking at looking at the company's products as a whole, do you ever? worry that individual investors might be overexposed to Bailey Gifford as it's had so much success. It's, it's a question we've written about this. And just last week, the headline of our portfolio clinic, where readers write in and um, ask for advice on their portfolio, the, the headline was, um, do I have too much Bailey Gifford? And, and the investor had 12 different Bailey Gifford funds, which made up a significant majority of the portfolio. And I also think Bailey Gifford's advertising has been very noticeable. I um, I see I see ads for Bailey Gifford in in all the magazines. Is this is too much success? A worry for you? Well, it's the right sort of success, isn't it? If people want to buy our funds because they think they're the best available choice in their their sectors, then you know I'm not going to argue against that. And I've got virtually 100% of my money in Bailey Gifford funds, so um, I'm very very comfortable with that as an approach. Um, it's important that people know what's what's you know, in the portfolios. Um, I don't think the advertising's had much to do with it. Uh, I mean, the advertising is is all around. You know, it's not really about brand. It's about an approach, and you know, it's we're just trying to underline the fact that we take a longer term view and a more forward looking view and a more optimistic view than many other investors. So you won't get the index return from Bailey Gifford funds uh, because well, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to 
you know, make you money, uh, which is a very different thing. Uh, and it's, it tends to mean that our portfolios look very different um, from, from many others out there. But, you know, all of, all of the different uh, trusts, for example, that we manage, they all have very different uh, objectives and benchmarks. There's, there's virtually no overlap. So, I mean, the biggest overlap is between Scottish Mortgage and Monks, which are both, you know, all cap global. But one has 120 holdings, one has 70. Uh, one has permission, uh, shareholder permission to go up to, I think, is it 25 or 30% now in private companies, uh, in the case of Scottish Mortgage, where, whereas Monks is a single digit percentage, uh, 8%, I think, has been approved by the board now. But we're currently at, you know, four or five. So there's a, there's a huge difference in the, the approach, in the number of holdings, in the exposure to private companies, you know, and those are the two that are most alike. So I, no, you know, I, I can't really answer. It's really for a financial advisor to say so <laughs> too much Bailey Gifford, but, uh, you know, it, it hasn't done its shareholders too much harm so far, put it that way. That's very true. Um, and you took over the management of Monks investment trust in 2015 and you really turned around its performance um can you talk a bit about what you, what you did and what changes you made uh well i mean a lot of it was quite quite boring and, and not necessarily worth going into but you know we had a very clear process and a framework when we came into monks and we've stuck to it since then it's very clearly a bottom-up investment process not top-down and one of the key uh, features of it, and actually it's a difference from Scottish Mortgage and others, is we are explicitly calling on the best ideas from right across the firm. So if there is one strategy that you might say should have decent overlap with some of the other strategies around, it's monks, because you know we, we encourage our colleagues to bring their best ideas to us. Uh, we're not a, a small team in a corner doing our own thing and not talking about it. We sit right at the heart of the, the firm and sort of, if you like, hoover up uh, other people's work. So what's happened is, you know, we, we are now, I think, the best ideas of the whole firm, not one single team. It's the performance has improved and the real turnaround with, with Monks actually, you know, because um, I think has been more on the, the, the business side, on the marketing of Monks. So we've been uh, very busy marketing the shares or the company to a, a more appropriate shareholder base, which is individuals often uh, guided by wealth managers. Uh, and so individuals, underlying individuals now own about 85% of monks, which is a, a big turnaround. So I, I mentioned earlier supply and demand. Well, for years and years, the supply of monk shares exceeded the demand for them. So it traded at a big discount and it was shrinking. It was buying back shares. And in the last five years, we've turned that round. We've removed the discount uh, through improving the performance. And we're now gently issuing shares back to the market. So Monks is in a sort of healthy state uh, and is growing at a, you know, a modest rate. Um, but I think it's good to be a relevant part of the, you know, the, the UK savings industry. I think we've proved that there is a role for Monks uh, as a, a global growth portfolio and a core part of individuals' um, investments. So, you know, there's no, no rocket science, no single investment has made the difference. It's just having a, a proven process and a framework and sticking to it 
and then uh, going out and talking to people about it. And looking through your fact sheets, it looks like you've taken some money out of Tesla and Amazon um, and maybe been reallocating into smaller companies. Um, what smaller companies in the portfolio do you think have the most exciting prospects? Well, if, if you know, if the benchmark's Tesla and Amazon, then everything is smaller. <laughs> because, you know, two of the, the biggest companies in the world. Uh, I mean, again, Monks, you know, it does have some freedom to invest in genuinely small companies and indeed unquoted companies, as we've mentioned. But the bulk of the portfolio is in actually pretty large companies, you know, valued in the sort of tens of billions of pounds rather than the sort of 50 to 100 million. Uh, so it's not a small cap strategy, but of the, you know, some of the, the, the earlier stage, shall we call it, uh, um, we do have um, a category of holding which we call the incubators, these sort of half-sized holdings, which make up, um, well, it's about half the names in the portfolio. And they're early stage, less proven um, ideas. And, and as they prove themselves, they'll probably become larger holdings. Uh, but that, I think, is where some of our, our best performers will come from. Um, I mean, companies sort of like Lyft, which is the, the more focused, the smaller version of Uber, which is only active in the US. I mean, that's currently obviously very depressed. Uh, but both the future risk and opportunity there comes from uh, autonomous vehicles, which could bypass them altogether or they could be right at the heart of an autonomous vehicle world, you know, a, a, a driverless car. Um, so that's a, a small holding, you know, it could become massive, um, maybe it won't. Uh, another one similar, which is is actually smaller, which is um, about, sorry, I can't remember, but $4 billion, I think, market cap, is Oscar, which a recent IPO, which was not a great success as an IPO, it's a, a, a technology-based disruptor in the U.S. health insurance market, um, which has only just gone public, but it's got a, a fantastic app uh, that is allowing it to win over individual customers in America, whereas, you know, health insurance is, is both a massive industry but also a bit of a scandal because everything costs so much and there's so much wasted uh, treatment and bureaucracy and so on. So using technology, they're trying to navigate their way through that and lower in, uh, healthcare costs uh, and keep people healthier. Uh, but probably the one I would go for, sorry, those are the warm-ups. Uh, it's the largest company probably no one's ever heard of. It's called Adavinta, and it is a Norwegian classified advertising company. Uh, and it is in the process of buying eBay's non-North American uh, classified advertising businesses. So it's going to double in size later this year when the authorities finally approve that. But this is, you know, it's already got the, or it will have the number one position in 20 geographic markets in 20 different countries. Uh, it's going to be massive. Uh, we think that it can grow its revenues at 15 to 20% a year for at least a decade. And that margins, as with all platform businesses, um, you know, should be significantly higher than they are now. So we're talking about a business that could have, you know, profits could be at least 10 times where they are today in 10 years' time. Um, and it's good, for, it's good for the environment. This is, 
you know, part of the circular secondhand economy, reusing, you know, finding a market for secondhand goods. Now, uh, it includes, I mean, the big categories are property. Uh, so it's like um, oh, Zoopla uh, or cars, which is, you know, sort of car websites, but also jobs, but also this big business, particularly coming from eBay in secondhand products uh, and finding new homes for, for what would otherwise be waste. So um, it's a company we're very excited about. Uh, no one's heard of it. Um, pretty unfamiliar, but you will hear about it over time. Yeah, that's cool. I hadn't heard of it, but I will be looking it up straight after this. <laughs> Thank you for the intro. Um, so you, you manage, as we've said, both the Global Alpha Growth Fund and Monks. How many private investors are in the Global Alpha Growth Fund? Did you see that as more for institutional money and Monks for private investors, or is that an, an unfair division? Uh, gosh, you know, I, I honestly don't know the answer. Yes, effectively, the Global Alpha Growth Fund was originally for private investors because, of course, I mean, that's been going for 16 years and we've only managed months for six in, in our team. So it's only recently that private investors have had the choice of two different vehicles. Uh, but yeah, I think that is the best way of thinking about it. It's the, the OIC is really for institutions uh, and larger clients um, and Monks is for the private investor. I think Monks has certain advantages. I mean, it is an investment trust. It has a lower... Um, fee basis, uh, it has the ability to borrow money, which we can then invest in the markets, so gearing, and it can invest in a small number of genuinely less liquid and smaller companies, including the private companies that, that I've touched on. So Monks is, is the same core portfolio, but with a few extra levers that should allow it to produce better long-term performance. And Certainly over the last six years, that's what it has done. And one of its large holdings is Shehalian Fund, which is Bailey Gifford's private company fund. It's recently raised $700 million, which was um, significantly oversubscribed. I think they started trading yesterday, I believe. But the trust is only available to institutional investors. Do you think the firm will make it available to private investors? Uh, well, it's not really a decision of the firm. This is a, a regulatory matter because private companies, unquoted companies, are seen as higher risk and therefore um, are only recommended, I think is the correct term, uh, for you know sophisticated uh, investors. It's also, I mean, I don't really, I'm, I'm not on top of the detail, but uh, it is not listed on the London Stock Exchange either. It's listed on an alternative market, uh, again, which doesn't have all of the protections for private investors that the London Stock Exchange offers. So uh, the answer is, I think over time, there is a hope that it will move to a full listing and then we can all uh, buy shares in it. But in the meantime, I'm in the same boat as you and okay. other uh, readers and None of us are able to invest in it, but it's not its not really of our doing. That is a result of the complexity of private company investing. But would it not be fair to say that private equity investment trusts do exist um, and are listed on the, on the main exchange, which you could do if you wanted to, or is that a misunderstanding? Uh, well, I think, I mean, it, it's 
this this may be getting down a bit of a rabbit hole, but it stuck, the first round of finance for Shahalian was entirely institutional. So at that point, it was our choice not to offer it to private investors. But in order to keep the costs down and to allow some of our overseas institutional clients to invest, uh, it listed in the way and in the place that it did. Uh, it would be lovely. I mean, I, no one wants to be able to invest in it more than I do. Uh, but that is, you know, this is, it, it's to do with the regulators, uh, not not to do with Bailey Gibbons' choices. And another bit of news about the company that's come out recently was, that, and it's not, not one of your funds, but Scottish Mortgage has taken a holding in blockchain.com, which is a crypto exchange based in London. I just was wondering what your view is on Bitcoin. Uh, is this, is this something you'll be, you'll be dabbling in in your retirement? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't have any view whatsoever on Bitcoin. And I think it would be inappropriate uh, for me to talk for Scottish Mortgage. I think uh, I'm sure you'll get the chance to talk to Tom Slater or James about that. Now, you've had a, a long, glittering career um, at Bailey Giffords. Could you just tell us, look, what do you feel is the, your proudest moment of your career? And then maybe what what you feel like your biggest investment mistake might have been? Uh, well, I might correct you one thing. I'm not sure that there's ever been much glitter in my career, but it has been it has been long, and most of it has happened in the institutional uh, world, you know, away from bright lights and glitz. Um, so I, I don't think fund managers and, and glitter sort of mix terribly well, um, which may have had something to do with Mr. Woodford's uh, travise, as you as you hinted earlier. Personally, I guess my proudest moment was being asked to, to be joint senior partner, uh, which was not something that uh, I had anticipated um, or expected. So that sort of felt like quite a, an honour. Uh, but I think the, the, the real proudest moment almost has to be now, you know, I mean, not necessarily today in this interview, but uh, the last 12 months, um, the performance that we achieved last year across the board, I mean, couldn't, can't fail to make everyone involved with Bailey Gifford proud of you know, what we do and the way we do it. And it has established the reputation of the firm um, in a way that, you know, I mean, we've been around for 110 years, but sort of now's the first time people actually have heard of us and know what we're, we're about. So I feel I'm definitely leaving uh, with a feeling, you know, huge pride of what uh, we have become and confidence in what they're going to kick on and do from here. It's a sort of fantastic platform, uh, but it's a fantastic platform for investing. You know, we don't think of it as a, as a business, and you, you've mentioned a couple of times we've been taking on new clients. We've actually had clients taking money away on a net basis over the last five years. Uh, you know, the, if the business has grown, it's grown through uh, our performance, uh, and that's the you know that that is that that's the best type of growth. Of course, it's within our control, uh, but it, it it hasn't grown because we've been taking in lots of new money because that 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 would be a mistake to think that. Um, so, and then you also asked about my biggest mistake. I'm afraid I always refuse to dwell on my mistakes or to talk about them because um, all investors make uh, you know, an inordinate number of mistakes. Uh, 
But I think, and I think as individuals, we can learn quite a lot from our mistakes, particularly if we conclude that our analysis was at fault or was incomplete. Um, but I think the important thing in investment is to look at the, you know, the fund return rather than the individual components. And if the, the overall fund returns are positive, I think it's, it's sort of unhelpful to dwell on the. It, it's one of the things that has plagued my life, particularly in the institutional market, that you go and visit clients and no matter how well you have performed, the first and the last question are always about what happened to this one, which uh, you, know, you have to list your 10 best and 10 worst. And the questions are always about the 10 worst. And I just found it uh, very demoralizing. Uh, and you very rarely got anyone to say well done and thank you as well. That was the other feature of institutional clients. So uh, I'm afraid, sorry, that's a very, very long way of saying I'm not going to answer the question. <laughs> that's fine, thank you. Um, yeah, just to clarify on the taking on new mandates, I was thinking about the investment trusts. So Keystone, okay. Britain Pacific, European well, Trust. I mean, there's a... There is a, an element of intent there. So, um, you know, for most of our teams, most of the money we manage is institutional. Uh, and where we've been, what we've been trying to do is where we have a team with a track record and a core competence, we have been trying where possible to add an investment trust as the sort of shop window, the public face of what that team does. So it doesn't mean that, you know, everything they do is... Unfortunately, the, the, what, what your readers are interested in is the, the retail aspect of it. But, um, you know, in, in many cases, so for example, in, in my own case, I mean, Monks is, uh, what is Monks? Monks is about, uh, it's 5% of the money I run. You know, there, there's another 101 clients uh, that aren't Monks. Uh, and that's true for, for many of my colleagues, but it is fantastic that where we've got standalone teams like Keystone uh, Positive Change is great. You know, that's a team that we set up five years ago. It's, it is winning institutional and family office clients, but it's now got a publicly quoted vehicle as a shop window for their capabilities. Uh, and I think you know, it, it's so motivating to have an investment trust for each of our teams that um, you know, I'd be delighted to see more, uh, to be honest. But it doesn't mean that Baby Gifford's going to collapse under the weight of the number of investment trusts because that's a small part of the, the, the funds. In fact, I mean, it's, it's less than our investment trusts still are less than 10 percent of our business. But I think our, release, our readers will be delighted for you to take on more mandates, given how successful they've been. Well, as long um, as they don't feel that they've got too much Baby Gifford. Which is, <laughs> well, you've assured us that they don't have too much. I'm not um, so. What what happens what happens for you next week? Are you going to carry on stock picking in retirement? Well, I think I will always. I mean, you know, I've been very very lucky that I've been able to turn my hobby into a career, and now that it's not my career, I will be able to go back to keeping it as my hobby. So I will be stock picking, but only only on my own behalf. Um, yeah. So, but I don't think you'll ever you'll ever lose interest in uh, something that is so interesting. Uh, but no, I'm not going to go and stop stop picking elsewhere. Well, Charles, thank you so much for your time. That's that's all we've got time for. But you've done a brilliant service to the UK savings market. Um, and yeah, enjoy your retirement. Well deserved. You're very kind. <laughs>